Hello, everyone. I am Kim Cox. And I'm Sarah Day. And this is the Book Lovers Movie Club. Today, we will be talking about the 1991 horror thriller, The Silence of the Lambs, and the 2007 crime drama thriller something, Zodiac. Um, so, can't wait to talk about that. Um, but, uh, Sarah, how are you yes. doing this week? I am enjoying some beautiful weather and trying to be the kind of person who actively goes outside. That is lovely. Um, <laughs> I am not. It was uh, very nice today, but I've mostly been inside. It's still been hot and or rainy here. Um, have you been reading or watching or listening to anything interesting lately? I am listening to a very silly book that I am enjoying very much um, called Assistant to the Villain. And Ooh, I have, did I, did you tell me about this or have I, I don't think so. I, I just started listening to it last week, so I don't think we've talked about it. Um, and it's just a sort of cute little premise where, you know, a girl finds herself uh, employed by a guy whose, whose name is the villain, which is, you know, sort of telling, right? Like that's the kind of story that we're in. Um so I've been reading uh, that and I decided to go back and reread Jennifer Smith's um, The Statistical Probability of Love at First Sight before I watched mm. the Netflix movie. And? Which is actually not bad. Although they I they changed the title to Love at First Sight, which is oh. the least interesting title in the history of rom-coms. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and statistical probability is only two extra words. I think you could have snuck them in there. It would have been fine. Are they too um, hard to say? Why did they take them like, off? That's funny. So, um, but the movie is actually, they've made tons and tons of changes from the book, most of which I think were smart um, and very enjoyable, good vibes, like sort of a nice little pleasant Friday night movie watch. Oh, that's fine. Um, but so that's kind of, and then of course, I've been reading Head Full of Ghosts. Okay. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. Um, I randomly, for some reason, watched The Lighthouse, the Dave Eggers. Have you seen that? No, The Lighthouse, uh, the one with Robert Pattinson? Yeah, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe and directed by um, Dave Eggers, who did The Witch. Oh, okay. No. Yeah, I've not watched it. And he also directed The North Man, which I have not seen. Um, but The Lighthouse, I had heard a lot about it that it was it's very disturbing and it's very very dark and from some people that it's very scary um and i didn't find it to be any of those things particularly um (laughs) it the acting is amazing um and it's weird like it's just this two i mean the movie is these two guys who are at this kind of remote lighthouse and they have to be there for four weeks before they'll be picked up and then things happen and it's about like they're kind of are they going mad is one of them going crazy and the other one isn't who's telling the truth what's real and you can't quite tell so it's very it could be disturbing for some people in those ways but it like doesn't go far enough Mm. or something with the imagery or it's it feels like um it feels like a movie that wants to be doing like what Lars Van Trier does in his most disturbing moments, but doesn't quite go there. It just pulls um, back which a you know bit. you can I can I can appreciate because nobody I don't I don't need to see another Lars Van Trier movie ever. Um, I've seen enough, but um, I don't know. It felt I wasn't it wasn't scary. It was interesting. Anyway, but if not, you ever find yourself watching it, 
It's not scary. So if you ever find yourself watching it. I was actually just looking up to make sure that I was right that um, Willem Dafoe had worked with Lars Van Trier. Yes, he was an Antichrist, which is very disturbing. Well, the only one of his movies, um, Lars Van Trier, not, not Willem Dafoe, that I have seen, I think, is Melancholia, which I did not enjoy. I guess you're not supposed to enjoy. No, you're not really supposed to enjoy that movie. I of his movies that I've seen, that one is my. uh, I say, I guess we'll use the word favorite, but that is, uh, I'm not sure that's an appropriate word exactly. Because (laughs) as you say, um, they're not enjoyable to watch in many ways. It's a beautiful movie, yeah. Um, But and I think Kirsten Dunst is very good in it. And I was less disturbed by that movie than by some of his others. Like Antichrist is just upsetting. Interesting to note. I actually did watch one other thing this week. Um, I watched, I'm thinking of ending things because Mm. we talked about how we're both Charlie Kaufman fangirls. And I realized I'd never actually. I didn't not realize that was Charlie Kaufman. I'm thinking of ending things is the book that has upset me and stuck with me most in the past 10 years. I find that fascinating because I could not remember the book and I know I read it because I talked about it with you. And it's, I was like, nothing about that book stuck with me. It upsets me. It's okay, we'll got under my skin it. so hard. Yeah. And I haven't watched the movie because definitely, I don't you know what, like, let's throw it on the list. Then we should watch it because it's Jesse Buckley. Yeah. Who um, upsets me for some reason that I can't identify. I don't and, know why. Maybe it's because I associate her with this book. Maybe, maybe. And but it is, is Charlie Kaufman wrote and directed it. Who's the guy in the movie? Bessie Plemons, which okay, is so... I like, but do but not I see this part know. at all. I, in my head, the, and I almost never do this because I actually don't visualize books really. Yeah. I saw Adam Driver in my head. Okay, and that that's would work. all I can see. Tall, they describe tall, him as tall and thin. They thin. describe him that way. And yes. that is not... Bessie yeah. Plemons. And he's an excellent actor, yeah. but it is an interesting casting choice for sure. Um, and then his parents are played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who also can do the very I don't know unnerving. him. He's a British actor. You probably encountered him. He's uh, Lupin in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And he's very good in those movies as a sort of comforting figure, but... He stars in an adaptation of a Beckett play. Um, oh. And I can't remember which one uh, because it's not, it's, it's not the one everyone's thinking of. Um, it's the one with the two guys in the trash cans. Endgame, I think uh-huh. maybe. Um, um, and it was him and Michael Gambon, also from Harry Potter. Oh, wow. And um, I made my students watch it once. <laughs> um and but he has the ability to be very unnerving yeah so if you Uh mostly know david thulis from lupin it's extra unnerving to see him Mm -hmm. in these other roles where he's just deeply off-putting um but so yeah i think it's it's charlie kaufman wrote and directed it and so okay all right worth watching for sure well for today um, we are talking about first up, um, Silence of the Lambs. So let's get into that. Um, the Silence of the Lambs is a 1991, thank you, Wikipedia, American psychological <laughs> horror thriller film directed by Jonathan Demme and written by Ted Talley. 
adapted from the Thomas Harris book um, from 1988 um, of the same name, also called Silence of the Lambs. Uh, it stars Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. She is a young FBI trainee hunting a serial killer named Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. Levine or Levine? I think it's Levine. I think it's Levine. I think so. Um, yeah. And Buffalo Bill is known for skinning his female victims. And you find out why later in the movie. And so she is trying to catch him. She seeks the advice of the imprisoned Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins and uh, known as Hannibal the Cannibal. Um, so that is uh, kind of the setup for the movie. Um, the movie won lots and lots of oscars um it won for best lead actor lead actress director film and screenplay the there are only five. two other movies um to have done that um one flew over the cuckoo's nest and it happened one night also did that and that's it so pretty impressive um and uh before we get deeper into it i have a quiz for you just one question okay just one question uh trivia about um the making of this movie so okay. here's your question um which actor stated that they would retire from film acting if they did not get the part that they ended up playing in this movie okay so they were they wanted a part they wanted this particular part if they didn't get it they weren't gonna be in movies anymore was it jodie foster anthony hopkins scott glenn or ted levine i'm gonna go with ted levine Levine. Levine? What did we say? <laughs> I think we okay. have Levine, but now you have me confused. Now I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to go Anthony, with Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, what are you even talking about? Anthony Hopkins. Um, and then, uh, so he was going to quit doing film. That's how much he wanted do well he was just done and i was like what do you mean he was done so i looked this up but he was going to focus on um the london london stage acting he wasn't going to quit acting but he was just going to do plays but in london film. um and not tv or film anymore and so i looked this up and this movie was made in 1991 um took a while for it to get made because you know somebody people had the rights to it and then other people were going to direct it and they went back and forth with lots of different people who were going to play all these different leads um Michelle Pfeiffer was offered the lead uh, for Clarice Starling at first, but she I did didn't not see that want it. All. She didn't want it. I mean, it's um, a very, it's a tough part. It's a tough and movie. Jodie Foster badly wanted it and campaigned for it for a long time um, and finally um, convinced uh, Demi to give her the part. But um, so Anthony Hopkins, who is, you know, Sir Anthony Hopkins, household name, um, one of the most amazing, impressive actors of our lifetime. But he, no one knew who he was before this movie. Apparently, he started acting on television in the 1960s. So if you look at his IMDb credits, he's got a ton of credits, but it's mostly like an episode of this, a TV movie, blah, blah, blah. And then he was cast in... Um, um, david lynch's the elephant man um in like oh, 1980 yeah. okay but it wasn't like this big huge box office success the <laughs> elephant man it did okay but um and then he did you know not a whole lot that people would know um between that time and silence of the lambs so he just wasn't having he was working steadily but not having a ton of success until 
the silence of the lambs which is bonkers to me because i just he's always he's been won, famous right he's always been two, famous he's won at least two or three more oscars he's won I think. that was his first and his first nomination and then after that he's been nominated five or six times and he's won two and one of them was just a couple years ago for the yeah father. he won um the father mm-hmm. yeah um but yeah, he was done. He was like, wow. I really want this part. If I don't get it, it's a sign I'm not doing film anymore. So a lot of movies would have very different uh-huh. uh, casts if Anthony Hopkins had quit film. Isn't that That's wild? That is wild. I was just thinking Ted Levine, just because he seems so deeply committed to this part. Like, yeah. um, And I've only seen him in like two other things and one of them what? is monk yes so. that's what i know him from too that's what <laughs> so i know him disconcerting from to be like oh okay um but i mean i think it's fascinating because you know you mentioned that a lot of other people had been considered for these parts i cannot imagine anybody but jodie foster and anthony hopkins i know in those roles the idea that those two characters the the dynamics between them i just it's it's hard to imagine any other actors being. it really is and i feel like if you've seen the movie before and you're thinking back on it and most you know i know that you had you were watching it for the very first time yes. for <laughs> this podcast which is amazing um but i you know i it's a widely watched movie people know it um and I think what people think of most is a couple of really iconic moments, right? So yeah. um, the the girl down in the well and you know, Buffalo Bill saying, put the lotion on the skin. That <laughs> obviously is a very famous line. Um, but then we think about uh, Lecter and Clarice together, and they only have four scenes. Um, and none of them really? are very long. Yeah. Wow, that's he, incredible. Yeah, and he... Um, uh anthony hopkins i also found this bit of trivia which i will not get completely correct but this is close he is um he won for best actor with the second least or least amount of screen time of anyone who's ever won um so he's only on screen for like a total of 24 minutes or something like that it Um, feels like so much more yeah and he you know he occupies the film in this yeah. way um that is remarkable once you realize that he's not actually he's not actually there all that much that's um, and the two of them together is only in these handful of scenes which is remarkable because they really are you know I, I think i mentioned this to you before that um watching this movie for the first time i was really worried that it wouldn't hold up or that it would feel mm-hmm. unsurprising because I had been exposed to so much sort of cultural allusion to this right. film, right? Because um, if you've grown up in the 90s and, and early 2000s, there's no shortage of references to Hannibal the Cannibal. I remember, was it David Letterman who came out on the Oscars wearing the mask? Oh, is that who it was? I think it's Letterman, but I could be wrong. That could um, be right. But yeah, I remember that. And there's the lines that everybody knows, like the fava beans and a nice Chianti line. Mm-hmm. And I was still so caught off guard by this movie. I found so many things about it surprising. But I think the most surprising thing to me was that energy between Clarice and Hannibal is mm-hmm. so like this weird reciprocal re- respect. Yeah. That mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting. Right. Yeah. Um 
The other thing that I found very surprising about this movie, and I, in reading about it after the fact, I feel like there, there was an actual effort to kind of distance itself from this word, but this is a very feminist movie, right? Like, yeah, this is one of the, the movies I've seen that I feel like I'm actually surprised at how right they got the experience of being a woman in a male dominated space. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what makes it so creepy is that it, every single man in this movie is a predator and somehow Hannibal Lecter is the least threatening man in this film if you're a woman. Yeah. So I was really caught off guard by that because yeah, that's really interesting. Anthony Hopkins is playing this role. I mean, okay. So the other thing that it surprised me is it feels like Anthony Hopkins in this movie is playing the same role in some ways as, as uh, remains of the day. It's like <laughs> that guy had two different paths. Yeah. He could potentially go down like this, like deeply repressed, polite, correct, you know, etiquette driven man um he can either become a very successful valet or he can be <laughs> that's so funny cannibal murder yeah. anyway <laughs> he's got a set I, of rules yes, you rules, follow the rules code that he follows yeah and absolutely you don't cross lines and you treat women with respect um but no i thought it was just completely surprising how how well this movie holds up mm-hmm. um 30 years later, I don't regret not seeing it sooner. I'm not sure at what point in my life I would have been like, yes, I'm ready for this movie. But I know it would not have been in 1991. So, Yep, that's fair. Yeah, there's this line. um, So, okay, let me pause for a moment and we'll do a little bit more plot plot. stuff. Yeah. Okay, so to preface the plot, I wanted to say that um, the character... There's an okay, so we have Clarice Starling, the FBI agent. Um, she's still a student. Mm-hmm. Um, she's still going through the academy. Um, Hannibal Lecter, who's the genius um, serial killer, uh, Hannibal the Cannibal, who is kept under very strict um, confines and rules for how to interact with him, who she goes to talk to to get help because they are trying to solve this case of the serial killer who they've dubbed Buffalo Bill, um, who is killing women um skinning them and then dumping them in the river and they want to they have no idea how to find him um they don't know how to figure out who he is and they think that maybe Hannibal Lecter will have some insight on on this okay so the person who actually sends how the hell does Clarice Starling end up talking to Hannibal Lecter she's just a student okay so um there's this other character Jack Crawford who is played by Scott Glenn and he is um the one who kind of is in charge of this case and sees she was in a class of his and he recognizes in her that she might be a really good person to go and talk to Hannibal Lecter because he would um she's a different kind of person to put in front of him she's very smart she's intuitive all these things so he kind of taps her to go do this thing um we don't get a ton of Jack Crawford in the movie but there is this one scene where they are um where they have to go to where do they have to go is it west virginia for the funeral? yes and yeah. um and they're there to um to examine the body of the most recent woman who's been pulled out of the river with who they think buffalo bill has killed because she's got these patches of skin removed and 
Clarice Starling is there and she's the only woman and she's physically much smaller than all the men we see many times in the movie. She is depicted as being of just very much smaller stature because, of course, Jodie Foster is. But they really highlight that, like when she gets in an elevator and all the men are like, you know, head and shoulders taller than her. And in this one moment, he's there. uh, Jack Crawford and Clarice Starling are there and um, they're talking to the local police and the police uh, chief is grumpy. The FBI Mm -hmm. has been called in. And so uh, Agent Crawford kind of is like, let's talk somewhere more private where we don't, you know, instead of in front of the the woman who's here is essentially what he's saying. Right. And then we late. And so she, you know, Clarice is left in this room with these men and she's literally in the middle of this circle of men. And then later on, after um, they're done with their um, examination and all that, and they're in the car headed back to wherever, headed back to Quantico, I guess, um, He's like, you really didn't like that when I pulled him out and said what I said. And she says this very feminist thing, but it's Mm -hmm. so understated and it's just straight to the point. It's not. okay. first of all, I I must say for the record, get up on your fucking soapbox about feminism. I'm all for it. But she doesn't in this moment. She doesn't. She's not like, you know, fighting a cause or something. She just says the the other men look to you for what to say and how to behave it matters matters i wrote that down too and he's like okay i hear you and then that's it end of scene right mm-hmm. um she goes back to doing her work so it's very efficient but very clear message that this is what he did is not cool and not he's acceptable re- and he's receptive to that He's kind of playing the like good old boy game, but maybe it's not what he would normally do if he could choose. And she's like, you can choose. Yes, exactly. Like you're not obligated to to perform for these men. You could actually teach them how to be less the way that they are. Right. What is notable, though, to me is that the movie seems to leave hanging the suggestion of some kind of attraction. Yes. Or he's, you know. And and especially with all the underlying daddy issue, yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and and so that very like last scene between the two of them, I was very fascinated to realize that it's not necessarily played as threatening, but there is a sort of underlying tone of like something could happen here. He might want something to happen here. Well, and I what are the say, power dynamics? And yeah, and the power that- dynamics make that. Is that as, as safe a person as we thought he was but she's not a student anymore in that that's last true scene, she, right? has she has graduated graduated and she's smiled back and yes. i will say also for the record here to not um to give jody foster some credit um she was offered the part of clary starling in the sequel in red dragon um but in that movie in the script that she originally was shown um there was um, stuff happened, but they become Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling become um, romantically involved. Yes, and she said no. That is not the. That I'm not that doing is not that. The relationship. That's not appropriate. Clarice would never do that. And they're like, well, right, but she base she had her brain scrambled. She right, like there's some sort. Of, I read a I read a whole thing about like because it does remain in the movie. I just don't know if they changed how it remains. But yes, that's the- they. They That's changed the it quite a bit, evidently, from okay. the way she originally saw the script. And apparently the way that it was rewritten after, um, uh, why can't I think of her name? Um, Julianne Moore. Just, Julianne Moore. 
Um, the only name that was coming to me was Marianne Moore, and that's a poet. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I mean, but you can see how that would happen. Yeah. Yes. Uh, apparently, it was rewritten after she was brought on board, and probably Jodie Foster would have been fine with the way it was rewritten. So that's a bummer. But anyway, yeah. okay. No, it is. So- it is interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, because that moment probably stuck with me more than almost anything else in the film. Mm was that it matters and she's just very direct eye contact no no sheepishness no second guessing mm-hmm. herself yeah and a, a situation with someone who is her authority figure who has and she's not the, letting him off the hook at all no and it is moment. really really str- stronger because of its understatedness i think yeah mm-hmm um, but the moment in the funeral home with all the men around her is so upsetting. Yeah, it's very She's upsetting. just, she's at the center and she's being watched by the circle of, of men. And the fact that cops are being portrayed as predators, as I think very, mm-hmm. it's very chilling, but it's also, I think, kind of ahead of its time in many ways. Um, yeah. In terms of its representation of law enforcement, this film, I think, is doing some really interesting things. And I don't know if that's part of the book's um sort of messaging too or if it's I just don't remember how... I, I read the books but it's been so long ago that i don't really recall um okay so a little bit of a little bit of plot so there's this guy he's done this stuff we um we know that there's a serial killer that they're looking for the movie begins with jodie foster with clarice starling running a like training course um in quantico at the fbi headquarters where she is a student and um she gets tapped kind of towards the end um to say jack crawford wants to see you and she finds out that there's um that she's got this assignment she's gonna go talk to hannibal lecter so we get that interaction between um that first scene with her and hannibal lecter very um early in the movie um where she goes directly in kind of cold um Mm -hmm. and talks to him and we get all those famous scenes where we find out that he's a genius that he can smell the perfume that she wears sometimes but not not that day (laughs) he knows what the perfume is but she's not wearing it today so right so he's presented as the sort of stereotypical, I'm sorry to say, um, genius serial killer whose yeah. uh, whose IQ is just beyond regular people. And that's why he was able to get away with things the way that he was. Um, anyway, so we have these interactions. He gives her some information um, about how to maybe uh, what to, you know, a little bit of um, insight into some things and says, I can't talk to you or fill out your questionnaire unless you give me something um, I want to be transferred. I want to view because he's just in this like dungeon kind of place. And so he she ends up coming back and offering him um, uh, you'll get to walk on. You'll be transferred to this place. You'll have a window. You'll be able once a week, once a year, you'll have a week where you can walk on the beach and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm not buying it because it's and he's right. It was it's a fake. lie. Yeah. It was a lie. Um, and uh, the reason for this offer being given um, and it ends up being given for real is because a senator's daughter has been taken. And we get to see the scene where um, in a very Ted Bundy kind of way, if you know anything about Ted Bundy, um, Buffalo Bill fakes an injury so that he can so that this woman will help him put a piece of furniture into the back of his van. And she just does it because she's a nice person. Like she sees yeah. this man struggling. He's got a cast on one arm. He can't get the this little love seat into his car and she just stops what she's doing. She got home and with some groceries and she's going to go upstairs and feed her cat and have some dinner. We see the kitty cat in the window and she sees him struggling and offers to help just, she's just being nice. 
Um, and it's a very Ted, it's very out of Ted Bundy's playbook. He did exactly the same thing, faking injuries to get women to help him with stuff. And um, I, I really feel like this film ruined American Girl for many, many people for a very long time. I had never, I didn't know why people had problems with this Tom Petty song. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. the creepiest moment in the universe when That's suddenly right. you're like, oh crap, like oh, Tom yeah. Petty is now the soundtrack to... Uh, Oh, I didn't uh, even think of that. I love violent. Tom Petty. I refuse. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I've had people make references to that over the years and I never knew where I was like, why wouldn't this be your favorite Tom Petty song? It's a great song. Um, no, because Buffalo Bill. All right. Abduction so he takes City. her and we find out later, like we see where he's keeping her and he's got his house set up so that like down in the basement is all like his murder lair right yeah um and he's got a sewing room because we find out that he's making a suit out of women's skin which is obviously horrific um and he keeps them in this old well is what it looks like um right it's a circular stone thing it looks like she's at the bottom of this old sealed up well um and they know that they that the women are taken and it's not until a few days later that they are killed and they don't understand why. And then um, Clarice Starling figures out why. And it's that he you know, starves them for a few days so that their skin loosens up so that he can get it off better. OK. Um, and, you know, there's some horrific scenes with her down in the basement. And then there are some... Um, scenes where we learn more about buffalo bill because we don't hear much from him but we see him mm -hmm. um in his um in his kind of domain a few times and the movie is doing some very 1990s stuff with um gender okay yes. so and um in some ways i think it actually handles these issues well because when the movie talks about Buffalo Bill as being a transvestite. That's the term that they use um, because he um, wears women's clothing. Hannibal Lecter says he's not actually a transvestite. He just thinks he is. There's this thing about him that he wants to be someone else. And he thinks maybe this will fix him, quote, right? Um, that perhaps he has applied for um, sex change surgery and been denied because of a history of violence. So look there, um, look into him there. Um, he's giving Clarice Starling clues. He actually knows who this person is, but he mm -hmm. won't just flat out say it. He's giving her clues. Um, and so we don't speak in this in these terms about um, a, about gender anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. But we do have um, a moment which I think. Um, kind of saves the movie in a lot of ways from being just completely problematic in its portrayal of Buffalo Bill in women's clothing and kind of equating him um, with being this horrific, um, insane killer is that Jodie Foster's character, Clarice Starling, specifically says there is nothing in the psychological literature that ties um, people who wear cross-dressing to any sort of violence. They, you know, typically violence is done to them, right? That she says they tend to be more passive, which maybe is not a term we might use, but it's a little too generalizing, obviously. Um, but it is kind of aware that, like, that is a really problematic and dangerous assumption to make, this idea that because he wants to wear women's clothing, that means he's insane, and so probably and he's therefore, doing violent things. Violent. Right. Yes. So, right, exactly. So it does, 
the language is um, outdated for sure. For sure. The yeah. Understanding of gender is not what it is now. Um, and the only the other major issue here, of course, is that it, because it's 1991, um, there's very little representation of LGBTQ plus uh, identities, and right. for for one of the sort of rare representations to yes. be a serial killer who's making a skin suit um does have ramifications right in yes, the yes. in the sort of like what am i contributing to cultural understanding right. so absolutely and probably that have... one probably that one line by jodie foster's character they're not typically violent did not override Land. all right. the visual imagery and the connections so but i do think that. i think demi has spoken to that since yeah um, and this is one of those things where you don't want to see a remake of Silence of the Lambs, right? Like we this is not that. a movie that you want to to update now that we have, especially because I don't think we've necessarily reached a place as a culture where there is enough positive representation. Right. Um, but I do think it's really notable that that when called on it, the creative team seems to be like, you know what, that's true. Good You're point, right. right. We like, got that wrong. Yes. And we um, would do it differently if we were doing it now. If yeah. We were, yeah. So, um, but it was, I definitely was fascinated by that because again, 1991 was a long time ago, um, but also our lifetime. And um, the sense that it was tackling some, some subjects about mental health, some subjects about villainy mm-hmm. um, that, you know, were, uh, taboo enough that several people turned down roles right enough that yeah. that people were like this is not a safe movie to be in um and for the most part i think is at least attempting to do what it's doing mm-hmm. um thoughtfully right like i did not feel like this was a movie that really hinged on spectacle or mm-hmm. and and the scenes where buffalo bill is in his lair mm-hmm versus the scene where Jodie Foster we'll we'll get back to that but like when we see him sort of out in the world right like he's right there's some really interesting ways in which the the character is his name James James Gum James Gum James Gum um, James Jam- Jamie Gum J A M E oh okay that's right um there's just some really interesting ways in which the film is is tackling that characterization Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, because it's in contrast to Hannibal Lecter, we also have a sort of like, don't, don't forget that a man can seem very put together and right. high in society control. in control and also mm-hmm. eat someone's face off, right? Like, right. like and also be incredibly violent. And so, you know, the sense that appearances and, and first impressions are not going to be the thing that we go by especially because some of the people who treat Clarice worst in this movie are respectable men in positions Mm -hmm. of power especially the guy uh who's in charge of the institution uh Uh, yeah Dr. Chilton yes who I think is like if he doesn't actually say the words little lady yeah that's what he heavily implies little lady Mm -hmm. yeah every conversation with Clarice so right um, um, you don't another mind interesting, yeah, another interesting thing about the representation of um, Buffalo Bill, James Gum, is that there's the scene which, other than him leaning over and looking into the well and mm-hmm. saying, you know, put the fucking lotion in the basket when he loses his temper, um, yeah. the most famous scene of him probably is when he is, you know, he's full, fully in you know 
costume. You know, we see him putting on his makeup and the mm-hmm. wig, which appears to have human skin. So it's like hair and skin he has taken from someone, it looks like. Um, but there, you know, we get the close-ups of his body in these moments that are meant to be very unsettling because it's like human skin on top of his head. That's mm-hmm. upsetting. Um, but then there's a, a more um like a full shot of him after we we can see that he has like tucked his mm-hmm. penis and he pulls back and kind of opens his arms up and it's this like glamorous pose that he is um in and he looks like he has female genitalia and there was that scene was cut and then the actor Ted Levine who plays it insisted upon it being included in the movie because he felt without this scene where I put on the makeup and I pull back and we see the full thing without seeing him in that moment you won't understand his character that you need that and I haven't totally wrapped my head around what I think about that Um, but it's interesting that there was the impulse on like the directing cinematography team to not do it and that the person who and he apparently really really dove into this character did lots of research for this character talked to lots of people um uh trans people and um and all sorts and read lots about serial killers and lots of things did lots of homework and he felt it was just absolutely important that it be there so I don't know what I think about that, but it's interesting. It is interesting and- because it, partly, of course, that it's it's his understanding of the character that he wants to make sure we're getting. Um, because I think obviously it's very possible for us to understand this character through a lot of other lenses without that scene. Mm-hmm. But I also think that doing just, I mean, even if you just shorten the scene to him putting on the makeup, that's evocative of, of so many um, specifically women's parts in movies right like that's what women get to do mm-hmm. in movies is put on makeup and and dress up and twirl around and i think that with just that it probably wouldn't have landed very well um the other thing i think is sort of interesting is that i find that his the pose he strikes is makes me think of the the death head moths or uh-huh, uh-huh. the sort of and, and the way that um the way that lector puts the uh guard up on his cage yes. later after he tricks the guards and slices mm-hmm. somebody's face off and puts it on his face to, okay, to be him. That, that was the second most surprising thing. Yeah, for me sorry about that. I probably should have given you a warning about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Plot twist. I mean, I was definitely not prepared. I, yeah. I don't know how that particular detail has fallen away in terms of what we talk about with this movie because it seems like a pretty important one. But um, but yeah, no, I think that that yes, that that posture is really the the pose he strikes has so many um other sort of aspects of the film to bounce off of mm-hmm. but it does feel important and it does seem like for the actor to have put those kinds of of efforts in i could see why he would be sort of invested in it it would be interesting to see the movie without it it's impossible i guess to to now mm-hmm. have that experience of the film yeah but it's without because Lecter says he's he's just trying desperately to be something else. Anybody else. And he sees this as the and opposite this of this is what he, he is. wants to be. And we can see that very clearly in that moment. This yeah. is what he wants to be. He wants a female body. And so um, that helps us to understand his psychology in that he's going to make himself one. Right? 
Right. It's like, definitely, it's- I mean, I, I think um, it, it is really interesting because that scene is, is the question. And I think part of why it's hard to necessarily determine whether it was the right call to leave it in or take it out um, is how much of it is exploiting or, or mm-hmm. going to be used in exploitative ways against trans people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's definitely a lot to unpack with that, yeah. but it is interesting to have an actor sort of fight so hard mm-hmm. for something that especially that's a character that if you're playing that character, you're not going to find yourself turning around and having a super mainstream career, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So once you've committed to playing a character like Buffalo Bill, um, that's what people are going to remember you as yeah, for a good long time. And it's yeah. going to be hard to to sort of break out. So you obviously want to do everything you can to, to do that well, but also I think it would have you invested in the film in a, in a very specific way. Yeah. Okay. So to kind of wrap up, um, ultimately um, we learned that Clarice Starling is probably almost as smart as Hannibal Lecter. He keeps throwing her these, like he, what we think are helpful pieces of information. And she discovers that's an anagram for this other thing. And it's this. And so here's what I think. And she finds these clues and she keeps going when, even after, um, uh, Jack Crawford has said, we've got him. We know where he is. We're going to go pick him up. We know the house. And she's like, okay. Um, and she keeps digging anyway. She's like following up um, where she is to get more information. Yeah. And she finds herself at uh, Buffalo Bill's house. And she knows that that's where she is because what she's a, great a good scene. agent and she's paying attention. And yes. that's where we see SWAT teams doing a thing and we see knocking on doors and then twistaroo and maybe if you haven't seen it all that's a, got a great moment it's a um, really well done scene uh and ultimately you know she saves the day after this incredibly incredibly harrowing scene of i will i mean not to dark. not to necessarily like <laughs> linger too much on this but holy crap i cannot think of another movie that uses night vision as effectively as this one yes and for a long while there youngins night vision was a thing 90s movies were like enamored of night vision and yes this is the most suspenseful frightening use yeah. of that of it's that so specific terrifying. 90s and you know effect. where you are like she has yes. just seen oh. right before the lights go out and she is plunged into complete black and we know that buffalo bill is right there and she he can see everything because he's got his night vision goggles on what has clarice starling just seen the second before this happens is a body decomposing and being like dissolved by acid in a bathtub in this horrible little room that is and there's just filth and disgusting awfulness around every little nook and cranny in this crazy basement and now she's in the dark it's it's amazing it's amazing it's so scene. so scary but like i yeah. said when the night vision clicked on that if, unless you grew up watching things that used it badly i think it'd be hard to to pick up on just how well it's done in this movie yeah really um, really well but yeah i never i have no desire to see the sequels i have been interested in watching the series the hannibal series because i've heard such great things about it although i've also heard that it's largely very um aesthetically driven yes. rather than character driven yes i um, mean there's some there's some good character things happening 
Um, but yes, it's very interested in that that mix between horror and beauty. It's like yeah. murder art. Um, <laughs> Which so. seems very fitting and, and certainly much more 21st century approach to yeah. the same material, same characters. But mm-hmm. I am very happy to have finally seen this. Um, definitely. I was, like I said, I wasn't sure how it would hold up. And I am deeply impressed with this movie's ability to both be this great award-winning movie and also joke fodder for 30 years of my mm-hmm. life. So we're we're pairing this and we've talked about, you know, other various serial killer movies we could do to pair with this. And we landed on two David Venture films, um, Seven, which came out in 1996, which seems way early. I don't remember Seven being that early. Um, or what we ended up going with, which is Zodiac. And uh, I will admit to being the one who kind of pushed for Zodiac for a couple of reasons. Um, one of which is that um, I didn't want to see Seven again. Um, this is fair. And I I like Seven. I think Seven's a very successful movie in a lot of ways. But the, the moment in Seven that has stuck in my head for all the wrong reasons is the moment with the box. What's in um, the box? What's in the box? And the way that Brad Pitt delivers that line <laughs> has never not bugged the <laughs> hell out of me. And I was like, I just can't do it again. Um, so, but I also think like Zodiac is a really fascinating little movie. It comes out in 2007. So it's mm-hmm. it's a full decade after Seven. But Seven is one of the reasons that David Venture ended up getting attached to this project because he did have an obvious interest in in serial killers and obviously is very capable of of creepy and surprising things um it not is, scared of violence at all no yes uh, <laughs> so obviously directed by david fincher um written the screenplay is written by james vanderbilt adapted from two books by robert graysmith um which is really primarily notable because our main character here is robert graysmith played mm-hmm. by jake gyllenhaal um a young jake gyllenhaal relatively early in his career um he'd already been in donnie darko and and Brokeback Mountain by this point, but Jake Gyllenhaal was not, I think, um, sort of a blockbuster movie name yet in 2007. Um, It also features um, a performance by Robert Downey Jr. in that moment where we were kind of getting Robert Downey Jr. back. Right. Yay. I'm so glad we did. (laughs) It was kind of like a renaissance for him after having such a troubled late 90s and early 2000s. Um, And also an early Mark Ruffalo movie. and I think Mark Ruffalo is the the hero of this film. Yeah. He's just so good in this performance. Um, but so the movie is tackling a lot. One of the reasons I think that this movie is a little bit uh, less popular than some of other Fincher's other movies is that it's not a quick and snappy movie. Mm-hmm. It's solid two and a half hours. And he has more material that he cut and kind of fought to keep in. And I think the director's edition is another five to ten minutes longer even. Mm. um and i would watch that yeah the scenes that it has that i read about being cut all seem like they'd be worth watching um and if you're in for two hours and 37 minutes i feel like you're in for two hours and 45 minutes at that point (laughs) yeah yeah um but uh it starts early in the zodiac killers um i want to use the word career but that doesn't feel right um with one of his first confirmed killings um and it follows two different groups working to solve this well multiple 
multiple groups working to solve this this confusing case. Mm-hmm. Um, the cops from several places in California and the journalists at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, primarily Robert Graysmith, who was a cartoonist. Yeah. And has nothing to do with this. Likes case. to do puzzles. Just likes to do puzzles and is is sort of drawn in by this by by this mystery. Um, and you know we do get to see some murders in this one. Um, Venture actively only included scenes that um, were from crimes that someone survived. Mm. So in the in the pursuit of authenticity and also because he did feel and i think this is a really uh, a useful way to think about things if you're making a movie that is ultimately going to sort of advance a theory about who the zodiac killer is right you want to be careful and thoughtful about what you're putting out there as evidence and so um he chose only to portray scenes that someone he could actually be consulted to right. discuss like Interesting. so survivors of the crimes yeah. Um, but the opening sequence is very atmospheric. We are riding in the passenger seat of a car, listening to Hurdy Gurdy Man on the radio, and and we're watching fireworks out of the car window. Um, and it's a very useful sort of setting because we are frequently put in this position of sort of observer or voyeur, like we're in a sort of interesting vantage point. Um, and this is when we meet two of the first victims and we follow them through their uh, murder and attempted murder. Um, so this is how we're introduced to the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of quickly are brought into the world of um, the investigations around these murders. Um, but the movie ends up covering solidly 25 years, I think, of time. Yeah. So um Fincher has a challenge, of course, kind of trying to figure out how to cover this huge swath of time while also getting in all these details that are getting picked up along the way. Yeah. And so even though we do see the murders, even though there are some very suspenseful scenes, um, it's also a movie that's about how do we find information? How do we share information? And and how... frightening it is to realize that all of these pieces of knowledge were there and some Mm -hmm. people had them but not everybody had all the information and there's this great scene where they're like you know talking to the police in Vallejo and Vallejo's like oh but that didn't happen here that one's like Sonoma County so there's a whole other police department that has information that they haven't even thought to call and this is you know it's just really I think using Zodiac and, and the sort of terror around this killer um to also really unpack some of the scary things about investigations and journalism so mm-hmm. he's doing a lot here and i yes, think there's a lot going on like it works maybe better on the level of those two latter things than it does as a crime movie yeah i think that's probably true yeah like the crime's there but it's possibly the least interesting thing about the movie hmm interesting well that's not true jake gyllenhaal is the least interesting thing about the movie (gasps) or jake gyllenhaal he has so little to do here other than just looking like the boy scout he does Um, get to go a little off the deep end he does it's true he gets very dark circles under his eyes um (laughs) i part of the challenge of a movie that covers this much time is of course everyone's supposed to be aging Mm. um and at one point mark ruffalo who's playing david toski who's this 
fascinating, fascinating human, right? Like in real life, fascinating human and in the movie, a fascinating character. Um, he's the character that like Bullet is based on, right? And then they make a Harry, a Dirty Harry movie that's sort of a rip on the Zodiac Killer. Um, and he's constantly like stealing other people's food and like snacking on animal crackers. And you're just like, <laughs> who is this? And wearing bow ties, like what is happening? Um, and and Mark Ruffalo is, I think, maybe early 30s when this movie is made. Um, and he has a line about how he's been a detective for 25 years. And I was like, sir, did you start when you were seven? Like, this doesn't, <laughs> there's no real effort to age anybody. It's a sort of fascinating thing where you're like, huh, okay. Like, the passage of time is signaled to us in a lot of really useful and effective ways, but not in any attempt to age these actors up over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. That's just a, I'm a slightly bothered by this. I apparently hung on to that particular detail. Um, but yes, um, so... Plot wise, it's it's a kind of it's a complex plot in a lot of ways because there are so many moving pieces and lots of character names and lots of actors you recognize who pop up for four minutes and then you never see them again. Um, but it hinges on the performance of um John Carroll Lynch, who is one of those character actors you recognize, but you I, I mean I'm looking at his face right now and I'm like, what else has he been in? And the answer is like a million and a half things, but you don't know his name, right? Like yeah. he's that kind of actor. And it's critical that you cast someone like that in this part. Yeah. Um, because he is able to pull off that combination of like, you could see how this would be someone you could ignore or someone who could fly under the radar, sort of unassuming. But there's also something very sinister about him when you are in conversation with him and his posture, his size. He's a very large man, very Mm -hmm. tall. Um, And so he plays Arthur Lee Allen, who is Robert Graysmith's um, primary suspect and several police departments, primary suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, But throughout the movie, there's this desperate, like, can we pin this on this guy? We know it's him, but nothing sticks. Right. Um, So the movie does ultimately, I think, land on him as the most likely suspect, but it also hedges its bets a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's not certain. There's a lot of reasons to think, okay, I, you can understand why the cops were never able to make a case. Yeah. And Fincher does this thing where we actually see the Zodiac in multiple scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, Once he's wearing a hood, so we have no, no look at his face um the other times he's primarily in silhouette those scenes are not played by john carroll lynch they're played by different by people three different actors exactly yeah. so Fincher's doing this fascinating thing where you're like this is not even the same zodiac playing mm-hmm. the zodiac um which yeah. could could sort of aligns with something some people think there were more than one zodiac killer right that they were yeah. at least two people working together and then you get thrown in near the very end of the movie, probably the scariest scene in the movie mm. with the movie theater guy yep. where Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Robert Graysmith, like stupidly goes by himself. And we have established already that you do not go by yourself to places um, to meet somebody for a tip and ends up in the basement and there's like creaking stairs. And so all of those possibilities of, of who the Zodiac might be get acknowledged, get some sort of space in the film. Yeah. 
Um, even if ultimately you are left with the impression that it was Arthur Lee Allen and that, you know, he died before any justice could be done. So mm-hmm. interesting, I think, approaches a lot to un- like a lot to take in, a lot to unpack. Um, and again, I think the idea that like, are we solving this case ends up being less about the case itself and more about how do we solve cases? Yeah. And and what happens if we get so singularly obsessed with one that it overtakes any of the work we could be doing elsewhere? Right. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know. What were your thoughts on this? You hadn't seen it before, had you? Yeah. So I will. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed it so much that I will now make a confession to you that I immediately, as soon as it was over, watched um seasons one and two and there were only two seasons of Mindhunter. Oh really? Like binged it hard. Like started <laughs> it the night started it the night that I finished watching Zodiac. And so whenever I'm thinking about and they're not the same, but, no, but you can see how Mindhunter talks about Zodiac. They're not exactly in the same time frame, um, but they're close, right? Mm-hmm. So Zodiac starts earlier and Mindhunter is later and we've got a lot of similar things going on. And I have to constantly tease out in my brain this scene with this person, which which thing was that <laughs> which in? Which was that from? <laughs> that from Mindhunter or was that from Zodiac? I'm trying to remember. It's too funny. So, um, uh, so they're kind of like all jumbled in my brain a little bit. That um, feels fair. However, however, um, I really, really enjoyed um Zodiac. I, I really liked how. This is such a English teacher thing to say um, <laughs> or a book nerd thing to say. But um, I really loved how, you know, it begins with this intrigue around breaking this code. Right. Right. Like a literal code um, because the Zodiac has sent this to these the newspapers. Cipher. And if some if he if they don't publish it, he's going to kill somebody or two somebodies or, I or don't a remember dozen somebodies or yeah. the specifics, but they have to break the code. And so um, Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to break it. And then these this couple who is just sees it in the paper ends up breaking the first code. But the way that this breaking this code or solving this puzzle is like metaphorically ripples out through the whole thing Mm -hmm. um as you say because there are all of these different bits and pieces of information all over the place and we're not seeing uh the full picture and i the way that um jake gyllenhaal's character whose name i can never remember tell me again (laughs) robert graysmith graysmith um the way he gets obsessed with like finding out who it is and how he needs to know, right? He says yes. he needs to know. But it's almost like the fact that there's a puzzle and he know he feels like all the pieces exist. If we could right. just get them all in one place, then we could solve it. That's the obsession. Yes. As much as like there's a kill, they're like, it's been however many years years right we just let it go and we're not even sure he killed all the people he claimed to kill right like we can only confirm i think three 
of the it, murders. And it's not about like getting justice for the people who've been killed the way you might hear about somebody who gets obsessed with a case. Right. Wanting to, you know, thinking about those people who were killed and it keeps them up at night. And you might hear that in some other version spaces yeah right but that's not his obsession his obsession is solving the puzzle um and that's how i love that he does that by going to the library yes me too (laughs) me too and writing a book right yes write a book book because once the book is written and it's between two covers and he can close it it's like perhaps there is more to say but here i've solved the puzzle here's what i've got here's what i got I put it There's all together. All the pieces of information in one place. And what's um, her name? His wife even says so. Melanie, like, yeah. Finished played by Chloe Sevigny. Thank you. Um, one of like three women in the entire movie. Right, and she's such a random like. I know. What a random choice. It's. I mean, the movie is just chock full of amazing actors, right? Yes, but the cast is unbelievable. The cast is amazing. Um, but she even says this, like, once he starts to do the thing that you expect the man to do once he gets obsessed with work and how many movies are like this in some way, obviously. Yeah. Um, he's neglecting his family and not, you know, calling home when he's supposed to be home or if he's going to be late. And eventually he loses his family over his obsession. Um, and she's like, just finish the book. Yeah, And then perhaps you can come back to real life. And she just ultimately, you know, once they're divorced and everything, right, Mm -hmm. they're separated officially and she still wants him to please finish his puzzle (laughs) so that he can move on to something else in life. Well, Um, it's fascinating because the movie sets them up as going on a blind date. Mm-hmm. And the thing that must have caught her interest is his sort of yeah. obsessive nature, right? Because she comes back to his apartment to wait all night for a phone call. So she knows this about him. Well, like, I mean, the way that it's presented in that scene is he is very concerned for his friend. Yes. Right. He's worried that his friend has walked into something bad and done a stupid thing because she's right. like that was stupid and he's like but of right, course a woman stupid. has to point out that it's stupid right not a single yeah. one of these men has like actually put together that you don't go meet a stranger in a strange right. place or maybe it's stupid it's but like fine. he's got it'll a gun fine. right like okay. yeah so you, you can shoot it but it's fine perhaps she might think that it, this is just a really touching aspect of his character that yeah. he cares so much about his friend but Oh, ultimately he and he does he seems to genuinely care about his friend fascinating aside though as much as fincher was working to keep the aspects of the crimes themselves authentic uh he completely manufactured that friendship between paul avery and robert graysmith apparently no apparently they were not friends and you know it takes some work to actually finagle a, a believable path to friendship for those two men yeah um but the way that Robert Downey Jr. plays Paul Avery as having a sort of like playful patience that he's stop playing it off. Right. Stop looming. looming. Um, they get yeah. their little inside jokes. Um, and, and this is a very, in some ways, a very standard Robert Downey Jr. role. It's mm-hmm. the kind of thing where you need somebody with that level of personality to make the character mm-hmm. someone you can invest in because he is a little bit bad at his job mm-hmm. and he is a little bit... Um, you know, he gets he gets somewhat obsessed, but he's also a little bit rogue. He does some things that are not great, um, judgment he's a great wise. Reporter, but right. he's also you know, 
The film also misrepresents things fall apart because he's an alcoholic and because right. he doesn't do things necessarily he's when a, he's supposed to do them. Not a good and, disciplined, yeah. right? Um, he actually did have the the film sort of suggests that he gets so obsessed with the Zodiac and he goes down so many rabbit holes with that, that he ends up losing his job at the San Francisco Chronicle and having sort of a sad end of his life. He actually did have at least one other major story. Um, he covered the Patty Hearst stuff. Oh yeah. And he had some major success journalistically speaking with that. And also um, he was married, he had kids and that part of his life is, is obviously not central to this film. And really nobody's family is interesting, right? right. Like mm-hmm. the film is not about like humanizing these men by showing us their wives and children. Right. Um, Cause uh, Grace Smith, he doesn't need a wife. Right. And kids in this movie to make, I mean, aside from the he... one adorable scene where he has his sons doing research. Yes. That is great. His colleagues. Um, that is great. But it helps to showcase how far he has fallen into this obsessive yes. hole um but other than that they're not necessary right and you only see uh mark ruffalo's uh you know david toski's wife is around more than the mm-hmm. other wives um i think we see uh bill armstrong's wife exactly once and it's when he has said i'm leaving i'm transferring i can't do this right. anymore i want to be around to raise these kids um Anthony Edwards. I guess we haven't actually even mentioned Anthony Edwards. Oh, yeah, Edwards. we didn't say it's yeah, that's Anthony Edwards. Which is Edwards. funny because Anthony Edwards is a very major role mm-hmm. in this film and um, is kind of like your um, your most solid foundation character, right? Like yeah. he's the most reliable character. He's very, he's very even. Right. He's very prepared um, and is very good at that. Anthony Edwards, of course, you know, for most of us, we grew up with him in ER. Right. And so I think he has a very, and, Dr. and Green. before that he was, yes, he's Dr. Green, right? And, yes. and before that he was um, Goose, right? So like we know him as mm-hmm. this is a guy we can trust. Like he is a yeah. good guy, um, but he's, he's sort of the character who is like, I'm making the wise decision yeah. to not let this case be the center of my life. Um, it takes Toski a little bit longer to get there. And we have some other really random things. There's a lot of emphasis here on handwriting analysis. So mm-hmm. you have um, Phil Baker Ooh. Hall just being fascinatingly popping yes. up and, and opining on, on handwriting. You have Brian Cox here playing Melvin Belly in this very weird real life twist where the Zodiac said, I want to talk to Melvin Belly. Right. And they put him so on weird. a daytime like talk show and he calls in. And I think I read that he called in 54 times to avoid the call being traced. Oh, my um, gosh. And the, the cops are trying to get Melvin Belly's playing this very like sort of I'm understanding. I want to get you help. Um, let's meet at this church and, and, you know, trying to get the the two characters um, to kind of flush out the zodiac and of course it doesn't work but it is really interesting to think about a, a moment in our cultural time where that would have existed where yeah. like they start at when the zodiac killer sends the first three letters and the newsroom is full of men trying to decide what to do with this letter do we run it do we run it on the front page mm-hmm. um and and one of the points is like are the other two newspapers running it like do we even know if they got mm-hmm. it and yeah basing the decisions on what the other newspapers are doing and then putting this televised conversation with a serial killer 
and every radio station is talking constantly about this killer. So if you're in the car with your kids and they're talking about the Zodiac threatening to blow up a school bus, mm-hmm. you can't escape this, this sort of yeah, story. There's this idea, I think, that happens in, in both movies and also in Mindhunter and in most movies where you would say this is a serial killer story. Yeah. You know, books, movies, TV. Um, what have you. And it continues to be this way because, of course, people really enjoyed the Hannibal kind of extension mm-hmm. of the universe series that, gosh, I don't know, how old is that now? Like, Ten years almost? It's been point? a while, yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it presents this idea of this killer who is in control, right? They are, the and the police and the journalists and all the people are flailing around trying to figure out what to do like anticipate their next move figure out who they are and the killer is presented as as kind of sitting back yeah making their decisions and then just being like haha never gonna catch me right and always presented as very smart but i do think that zodiac shows us some of what happens and mindhunter does this too that we would love to think that all of the serial killers who have never been caught or who went for a very long time without being caught, that the reason that happens is because they're just fucking brilliant. Yeah. And actually it's usually because of, you know, failures in the investigation, just simple lack of evidence, or it was handled wrong, Wrong, whatever it might be from what you have, right. Making the wrong assumptions and Mindhunter does some interesting things with that. I'm sorry. I keep bringing it up because they're just trying to figure out what even is a serial killer and how does that even like the the term serial killer didn't exist yet. Um, Right. And they had to create it and they're trying to, you know, figure out what makes these people different from like a crime of passion or something else. Um, And it was, you know, tended to be this kind of larger than life mythologized image of the killer as brilliant. And Hannibal Lecter definitely is that. Um, And the Zodiac with his codes that we can't figure out. Right. um, And we can't, you know, we never find him and all of the, is presented in a similar way, but we do get that other side where we're like, well, perhaps if the police departments just talked to each other. Right. There's a great scene where Bill Armstrong's like, we'll telefax you what we have. And two like, different police are like, we don't have fax machines. Yeah. But, um, so I have to send you in the mail. In the mail. Can we drive there? We have that you don't have. Well, and I mean, even just the idea that some of this is obviously purely chance and the movie definitely plays with this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like the idea that one of the murders, you get the impression like, oh, this, this mastermind was, was choosing to commit murders in different areas so that he'd know the cops Mm -hmm. wouldn't talk to each other. But one of them is so close to Vallejo that, that the cops don't even realize it's not Vallejo. Right. Right. Like, like, that oh, wait, seems like the a border? lucky chance exactly yeah um and chance. then one of the most suspenseful moments in the entire movie to me and maybe this is just again like coming back to what we talked about before with parents and what being a parent and watching horror movies is the moment where the zodiac presumably it's the zodiac right um stops a woman and says your right tire is loose can i can i tighten up your lug nuts but what he right. actually does is of course loosen the lug nuts so that 
like a quarter mile down the road, her, her tire falls off and he's there to help her, but he doesn't realize that she has a baby in the car. And, um, when she gets into his car to go find a service station, he goes, oh, I didn't know there was say? a baby. He was going to throw the zero. baby out of the window he before he I'm kills her. And totally flat delivery oh, flat. is and like, what is the exact line? I'm going to throw your baby out the window before I kill before you. I kill you. Like that. Yes. And when you see her next, she has jumped out of the car. Mm-hmm. And one of the she is one of the survivors. And this is right. a scene that has absolutely been verified. But she is so frightened that she's just standing by the side of the road screaming. And we don't know for several seconds what has happened to her baby. Yeah. Um, but it's that clear sense of like, that is a moment where this is not a genius. This is a guy who saw a car and was like, time right. to do some killing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it's not foresight. It's not planned out. It seems to be Times very much exactly, and so it totally undercuts that genius killer. But again, I think even the characters in the movie want him to be right when they're discussing right. the cab killer or when he kills the cabbie. They're like, "Well, he's not an idiot because he waits until the car is stopped. Why does he go past where he was supposed to go?" Like they figure, okay, he's the smart guy, but then mm-hmm. he takes his gloves off. To clean the blood, maybe? And why would he get in the front seat at all? And he's doing it in front of a residential area? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to uh, that sense that we have a sort of like, we have to outsmart the smartest guy, and that's the only way we win this this battle of good and evil, um, I think Fincher is definitely interested in undercutting that. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, too, thinking about these two movies together, because obviously... um, Silence of the Lambs is a building sense of urgency. We know there's a ticking clock. This girl has days to live. Can we find her? Right. And that, that tension is ratcheted up because she's the daughter of a Senator. So there's a political element. There's all this pressure Mm -hmm. on Clarice to solve this crime now, right? We have to save this girl. We have to, to end the serial killers. And then the lambs might stop screaming. Right. Such a, so, but the idea that we have that urgency and it's getting more urgent as the movie goes along, Zodiac has to kind of flip that because in real time, there were a couple of years where people yes, were horrified and it was urgent. And then things sort of dropped off. Mm-hmm. So the letters stopped coming. There's no more murders for a few years. Um, and as, essentially it is a cold case, right? So yeah. when this movie came out, it actually did lead to the case being reopened. Mm-hmm. And it also led to a lot of a sort of cultural like, oh, I'm now I'm interested. I wanted to see if I can solve this case. Um, and this movie is timing wise, I think right there at the sort of CSI forensics yes. sort of moment, like how do we do procedurals? But it's also, I think, early in the true crime wave of yeah, interest sure. um yeah. and and to some extent potentially even helps to kind of kick it off even though it wasn't a hugely successful movie um critically or commercially it was pretty successful critically um but you end up with this idea that like i could solve this murder because yeah. robert graysmith is just a cartoonist right he's just this guy who doesn't have any extra mm-hmm. insight or access he manages to get some like he gets to where he's like, I can knock on the door of this cop, like the police station and the cop is going to let me in and look at this files again. Right. I'm going to go talk to them, this victim's sister. Cause I can. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. One of my favorite sort of random ho- casting choices of the entire movie is Clea Duvall showing up for like four minutes to play one of the first victim sisters. I yes. love Clea Duvall. 
Oh, she's great. Uh, and she's not in much lately. I think she's actually directing now. Um, but this idea that that Jake Gyllenhaal as sort of like Boy Scout looking guy mm-hmm. just wants it bad enough he can solve it is absolutely part of the current ways that we think about true crime. Mm-hmm. And then within 15 years since this movie came out, we have had yeah. like um, the Golden State Killer yep. murder solved by essentially an amateur who just got mm-hmm. interested in the case and just knew how to do research. Yeah. Um, and we see it getting spoofed places. I don't know if you've watched Yellow Jackets. Yes. Oh my God. But so the citizen detective yes. plotline is one of my yes. favorite things where there's this forums full of people. And even if you just scroll Facebook enough, you'll mm-hmm. see people who are like, here's my, I've been detecting clues. So I'm going to offer my 17 thoughts about this unsolved murder that happened in 1983. Well, of um, course, in the podcasting universe, yes, the listeners are called upon often. And but this started really with um, unsolved mysteries, right? Yes, which if I was you know anything with as a kid, yes, course, call us in. If um, you know anything about this case, call us. So we've been called upon as citizens to help for like solve 40 cases years. for a while now. But it has definitely ramped up with the um, availability of you know forums like social media and things that make it so much easier absolutely and of course the internet in general well um, and, and it does raise the question like could we have solved the zodiac murder murders um if they'd happened 20 years later 30 years later when there right. was access to dna mm-hmm. and databases um but i think that venture is sort of suggesting that ultimately this same human error was always gonna be, was always gonna happens. be there yeah, yeah. like um, so that having access to information doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get the right conclusions from that information or that mm-hmm. the information ultimately isn't going to help us. Like yeah. they spend half the movie trying to get more handwriting samples from Arthur Lee Allen because he's ambidextrous. And this entire theory hinges on the idea that his handwriting will match if they can just get something he wrote with his other hand. Right. And then, then nothing has ever been found to corroborate that. Like, and there's, I I know, maybe you, I don't know if you looked into this or not before today, but there was some theory about a very specific, about a specific person that was thought to maybe be the Zodiac killer recently. There's very recently been a group of these, I think like earlier largely, this year. Yes. Like within the last couple of months, maybe even, um, although I could be getting that confused with, I feel like we also recently solved jack the ripper in the same way right like that's a similar no. headlines that were like well the long island serial killer was that was solved we definitely have had recent mm-hmm. um but i think with the zodiac killer almost everybody who's been advanced as a suspect and there are several that have plausible i mean it's it's a sort of frustrating reality is that there's several men who this could have been yeah um and all of them are dead like right. even if we solve it now it's always going to be an unfinished right story because the idea of justice is not you know even on the table anymore yes so we can't whatever we can't, justice means exactly we and that's a we, different we may never form, know but. the answer of whether he actually committed all the crimes he claimed right um and if he didn't do it then that means those crimes belong to someone else who got away with it right like there's just this kind yeah. of larger ripple effect um and we get a glimpse of this in the movie when um Robert Graysmith has sort of insinuated himself into Dave Toskey's life in a very sort of active way. And Toskey's not happy about it, but he's not stopping it either. And they go get breakfast. Mm-hmm. And Toskey's like, there have been 200 murders 
since we got those first letters, right? Like, are we just supposed to not investigate these other 200 murders? Um, which also seems like just a charmingly small number now to some extent, right? Like, But it was just in that one spot. Right, that's true in San Francisco. <laughs> just in that one area. But um, yeah. But the idea that we can't put everything on hold just to solve it because this is one that's maybe more interesting or, or scarier to us for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course it's a reality that's not going to be true to Robert Graysmith, who is able to put everything into this one single case. So right. um, I'm always fascinated by what people who are still alive to see movies about themselves, think about their movie representations. And apparently yeah. Graysmith's only comment on Zodiac has been that now he understands why his wife divorced him. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, honey, like, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> that should probably have been clear to you without watching what oh, happened wow. to Jake Gyllenhaal. But um, the other thing I want to say about this movie is that I think this movie is shot incredibly well, which is not mm. surprising. It's a Fincher movie. Right. But um, the way that California is used as a set for yeah. for the various scenes, because you have like one murder on the lake of this gorge. I mean, the the bank of this lovely lake, sort mm-hmm. of isolated, beautiful, You've got that, serene. What looks like really quintessential California light. Yes. Right? And he manages the, the, the yeah. period setting incredibly mm-hmm. well. Like it's yeah. so detailed. Again, this is Fincher. You're not surprised to realize that he's thinking about these things. But um, just, you know, the authenticity of the costumes, the cars, like the way that California and particularly San Francisco get used for their atmosphere um the even just the the poster for this film Mm -hmm. which is the golden gate bridge yeah shot from this like an angle you never see the golden gate bridge Uh from yeah so that it takes a second to even reconcile in your head that that's what you're looking at it's very thoughtful you Um, just brought our metaphor back somehow yeah there you go (laughs) he's very good this david fincher guy i think he's got a future um so i think so we should watch out for him in both movies end, Silence of the Lambs certainly has a satisfying conclusion when it comes to Buffalo Bill. Um, yes. But it does end with, it's it's open-ended in that mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter gets away. And, and we, the feeling that you get when you realize that you might be rooting for him. I know. I know. Is troubling yes, in ways that it are is. similar to Zodiac. Yes, vibes. it is. But we both <laughs> both of the movies have um this kind of openness to them, yeah. which I find um really I mean, as a person who would love to know the answers to things, not satisfying, but in that they feel more true is nice. Like we've got yeah. I mean, the name of the movie is Silence of the Lambs, right? And right. the scene where she talks where we understand why the movie is called that, you know, she Clarice is explaining when she was young and she had to live at her uncle's house and they were killing the spring lambs and they were screaming and she was trying to save them. And she couldn't save just one lamb. wanted to just say if she could just save one, but he was so heavy and she couldn't do it. And lectors like, and so you sometimes wake up at night and still hear the screaming. And she's like, yes, I do. And he's like, and you think if you can save this girl that maybe the lambs will stop screaming. And she's like, I don't know, which we assume is true. She doesn't know. She's going to give it a fucking shot. And, and do we think at the end of the movie that the lambs have stopped screaming? No, absolutely not. Because the last, she might be happy that she's, you know, they've got Bill and she's finished with her school, but then she's on the phone with Lecter. Yeah. Saying, 
Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter over and over again, and no one's answering her. And of course, we don't know who the damn Zodiac is at the end of all that. And in a funny little ironic moment, when I was reading a little bit about things yesterday and this morning, there's this quote that I came across um, by David Fincher, and he's like, what did I learn from Zodiac before I did Mindhunter? And one of the things was like, well, if it's a lot to ask of people to sit and watch something for two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes that has no real conclusion. Yeah. Um, and so I really thought about that when I went into Mindhunter. Okay, Mindhunter was canceled after the second oh, season. No. <laughs> and there is this. Is there a cliffhanger? There's a framing device in the show where you begin every episode with this character doing bad things and you can see that he is um he's he's a bad guy he's probably a murderer he's a serial killer there's this one little blip maybe in the very first episode where somebody calls him by his name and i was like oh i know who that is and so i knew who this person was like the serial killer that this character was but you don't ever know in the show he they bring him back for the second season and you begin every episode with this character i do maybe some of the episodes or even all the episodes i'm not sure end with this character just like little like two minute scenes and then the rest of the action has nothing to do with that character at all so the third season was going to be that character but they didn't get one (laughs) (laughs) so it's completely open-ended and unsatisfying and if you don't even know who that is supposed to be then it's just like then you're like what the hell and i knew who it was from the very beginning because of you know listening to true crime podcasts and being someone interested in that in general i was like oh i know who that is um but otherwise, but otherwise you're, but even then you're like, are we not still want to, I was going to say, you still want to see it actually resolved. Like you yeah, still want to see it, does it not go. At all. Not see, at that's all. part of why I've stopped watching. Um, I didn't start Hannibal when it came out because I just knew it was going to get canceled and it was going to be left on a cliffhanger and I'd been burned by too many early yeah. cancellations. So now I sort of wait um, and either only watch things that have like short runs intentionally or that I feel like if I don't get too committed, it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but then I'm still left like dying to find out when is there going to be a second season? Like we watched, um, I'm going to put in a plug for one of my favorite weird little shows of the past few years. Our flag means death. Oh, I can understand why people love it. It is not for me, but it yeah. is one of my favorite things that has happened on television in the past few years. And it took them quite a while to get around to confirming the second season. Oh, wow. And I was like, I did not know that I was getting myself into this. Like, I thought, oh, funny little pirate show. Ha ha. And my emotional commitment to that, that cast of characters by the end of the first season, way outstripped what I was expecting to put into it. Oh, Um, my gosh. So and like, HBO has been just pulling stuff left and right. So I didn't know I was putting my heart at risk. Um, And I'm saying this so that people will go watch Our Flag Means Death. Mm -hmm. Season two has just come back out. I think this um, is a strong recommendation, even yes. though it's not for me. If I you hear... like Taika Watiti at all, mm-hmm. but also Reese Darby is a just a comic genius and also just the most lovable, hapless character 
Um, and they have this fascinating. He's ensemble. from Flight of the Concords. He is. And other so New you, Zealand if you like that, you might like. Yeah, this. If you're into anything that came out of, of Australia or New Zealand in the mm-hmm. sort of comic mockumentary variety of show in the last 20 years, you will probably enjoy it. But also like, it's just doing stuff that you think they're not going to go that far with it. And then they do. And you're like, oh, I've been <laughs> waiting for a show to do this. Um, and I felt similarly about Yellow Jackets, where I was like. If this just ends, I'll be okay. But now that I'm in, I want a second season. Like, and I haven't watched the second season yet. So that's one of my projects. Mm. I need to see season two. You're not making any kind of faces to help me understand. You should watch season two. Okay, good. Okay. Yes, you should watch season two. <laughs> okay. So on that note, um, well, I really enjoyed these two movies. I'm glad we watched them. And I also think they were me kind too. of a nice break from jump scares, although I definitely still had some very frightened moments. Uh-huh. Um they also are a great, I think, set up for next week's because they are partially sort of asking questions about what horror does and what what scary movies mm-hmm. are supposed to be and what makes yeah. a movie scary or horrifying, um, which I think will come up with both of our choices for next week. So did you want to? Yes. Yeah. So next week we are going to be talking about um, what we are kind of loosely calling social horror so maybe thinking about um kind of broader issues in society um with the movies get out from 2017 and parasite from 2019 and i'm super excited about about those movies are as old as that they both feel like they just came out they just came out right i know I know. Yes, definitely what is time? Who knows? These. But I'm yes. super excited to talk about them. Anytime I have an excuse to watch Parasite again, I will take it. And um, the following week, we will be um, talking about another movie, which we'll tell you about later, but also the book that we're reading for the month. So, yes. so if you um, haven't started reading Head Full of Ghosts. Head Full of Ghosts. You mu- if you want to. I why I have a hard time with that title. I keep wanting to say it. <laughs> Like, is that what it's really called? Yeah, so if you want started. to, if you want to kind of join in vicariously with the discussion of Head Full of Ghosts and not have it spoiled for you, you might want to um, start reading it. It's not horribly long. Yeah, um, it's a pretty quick read, I think. Yeah, but you might want to think about that. Though I'm only reading it during the daytime. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking to you, Sarah. As always, looking forward to next time. week. Okay, bye. Bye.